Good morning, everyone. It's a, it's a little intimate this morning on Mother's Day. We're especially glad for those of you who have chosen to join us. Good to see you up top in the balcony as well. Um, this is a great, just a great Sunday to be together. We've been going through this series in Easter called Jesus Is. Before we dive back into it, I just wanted to give you a little uh, snippet of what's coming just with me now coming in as the new community pastor. I wanted to have a slide prepared for all of this, but we'll get to that next week. Main thing to know is this. Uh, as we transition into this new season with me here as the community pastor, the first thing we wanted to do was begin with a chance to hear back from you as the church. Uh, there's been a lot going on. There's been coming out of COVID. There's been staffing changes here. There's just been cultural upheaval. The city is kind of shifting and changing. And if you actually look at our church location specifically, about half of the core of this church have just shown up in the last eight or nine months or so. And the other half of you have been around here for several years. There's just a lot of mixing going on. And everyone's had a little bit different experience of what that has all looked like. So we really wanted to slow down first and just take a chance to hear from you. So my request is this. This week you're going to be getting an email it is a simple 10-minute survey. So the survey gives you sort of a run-through of the Sunday experience. It talks a little bit about small groups. It talks about what we offer here as a church. And we just want your honest, as honest as you feel comfortable being, uh, reaction to how your experience has gone here. And I hope there are many things that have gone really well. I'm sure inevitably every one of you has had a few things that have frustrated you or have been difficult or confusing. There's some open-ended space for you to write either a short sentence or a lengthy paragraph, whichever you prefer. I will gladly read both. Um, but we just wanted to give you the space, space to respond, space to hear your voice, and space to reflect together as a community. So my request to you is that we're going to have about three weeks where the survey is going to linger. If you could take the 10 to 15 minutes, in fact, if you could do that commitment, I know as soon as you see a link for a survey, you're almost trained not to click on it. But if you could just lean in and give us those 10 minutes, that will mean so much to us. We're going to talk about this the next couple weeks, so we'll give you a few more chances. I'll get a slide up here so you can get the QR code, all that good stuff. That survey is going to be crucial because then in June, the first Sunday in June, June 5th, we're going to do a big rallying gathering. If you're new at the church, this is a perfect spot for you to come. If you are one of our core leaders, volunteers. This is another crucial, essential gathering that we're going to be doing June 5th. I'm trying to figure out the best term for it. It's like an all-church vision huddle, something like that. I'll keep working on the branding. That didn't inspire anyone, so I'll keep working on it. Um, but June 5th, if you mark that on your calendars, if you're here, we want you to gather with us June 5th because we're going to get a chance to go over those surveys. We'll share the results with you. We'll have some space to reflect to listen some more, but then we're also going to get a chance to share some of where we'll be going as a church. So we'll talk about that the next couple weeks, but I just wanted to give you that as we get started here, as I'm getting settled in. This is some of the new season that we're going to be having here at Community Lincoln Park, and I am really, really excited about it. Okay, so to turn back to our series, if you have been with us since Easter, we have been walking through this question, who is Jesus? I think it's been a wonderful chance to sort of slow down, recenter ourselves in spring as summer's coming, as we're coming into this new life post-COVID. Who is Jesus? And so we talked Easter about the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected new life. Jesus extends that to us. We talked 
two weeks ago about how Jesus is gentle. If you were here when John Hughes came in, the third John, uh, he talked to us about Jesus' gentleness. Then last week, John Ferguson was able to offer us Jesus is humble, right? Jesus is humble. I love that word. I loved centering ourselves on the humility of Jesus. But if you see a flow to this, this final week, we want to lean into one of the biggest claims that Jesus makes. And it is this, that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. What does it mean for us that Jesus is king? Well, a story for you uh, happened this last fall that kind of got me thinking about Jesus's kingship. Uh, I had the chance, because we were living over in Belfast, to do a trip to London with my wife. It was really great. We saw a show. Uh, we love London. And yet, as we were in London, I'd always wanted to see Westminster Abbey, the big famous church. And so I had a friend who lived in London, had been a Londoner uh, his whole life. He's very British, very posh, as they say over in the UK. Uh, he talks with that very sophisticated accent. He agreed to take us to Westminster Abbey. He had access, and he actually took us up to the cloisters, this sort of upper loft that had a gallery. And the culmination of this gallery is that you're turning and you walk around this corner, and there on the wall is a portrait I'm about to show you that is mammoth. Picture this portrait, about 12 feet wide, about 8 feet tall, and I'll just give you my reaction first. As an American, <laughs> I turned the corner, walked up, I saw this portrait of Queen Elizabeth, and I went, huh, it's nice. And then I turned and I proceeded to walk along the rest of the museum. But I want to slow down and give you the reaction of the two others who were with me, my wife, who has a very complicated history in Northern Ireland, relationship with the crown, and yet would come as someone who considers herself British. This is her queen. And, and then this friend, who himself had been born, raised in London, his whole wife, has a reverence for the queen. What happened was both of them turned the corner, and they stood aghast. I, I literally saw both of their jaws drop, and then I am not even joking you. Simultaneously, both of them had tears begin to run down their eyes as they stood and looked at their queen. I think it's some of just the heaviness of her head, the weight of years that she's carried and responsibility, just the beauty, the majesty, that sense of protectedness that there this figure has stood for them all this time. And I was struck, struck in this moment by this sense, what would it be like to have a queen? What would it be like to actually have a monarch that was there for you. Uh, for that reason, this sets us up to talk about what it means that Jesus is king. And I actually want to take you back to three Bible passages, three scriptures that actually offer us their own portrait, if you will. These are all very familiar passages, but these passages are going to open up the kingship of Jesus. Before I show you these portraits, though, I just want to talk for a second about the fact that in Jesus' day, it's sort of helpful to note uh, it would have been just as bizarre then as it is today for Jesus to claim to be king of kings, right? If you are walking down Michigan Avenue and someone says to you, hey, did you know I'm, I'm the king of kings? You'd go, yeah, good for you, right? Like, congratulations. I'm really glad that that's, that's what you've experienced in life. In Jesus' day, similarly, 
Jesus came into the Roman Empire, where, just a little bit of backdrop, in the last couple of decades before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar had seized power in Rome, called himself Lord, Domine, in Latin, and as Lord, he was the king who ruled over all kings. When Julius Caesar dies, uh, his son, his adopted son, claims that he sees Julius's spirit ascend into the heavens as a god, that Julius Caesar has been welcomed into the heavens as a god. So now, in Jesus's day, as you walked around, it was very common to hear that Caesar is the son of a god, and as you would go to exchange currency in Jesus's day, a Roman coin on it had written, Caesar is Lord. There already was a king when Jesus walked into this earth, and that king, everyone would have known, was Caesar. So if that frustrated you in Israel, then the thing that you would do as a frustrated Israelite is that you would look at the person that Caesar had put on the throne in Israel at the time. His name was Herod. He was a puppet king, so he paid lots and lots of tribute to Caesar, and Caesar allowed Herod to rule over Israel at this point. But again, in Jesus' day, there was not only the king of kings, Caesar, but there already was a king, Herod, and most Israelites despised Herod. And so if you were really active, if you were really political about it, then you would join this group of people in Israel who were known as the Zealots, and the Zealots wanted more than anything else to overthrow Herod as king so that they could finally have their own king in Israel. This was the deepest desire in their heart. So I just picture for a moment, you're walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and on the one hand, there is this big mega machine that is called Rome, where you are reminded almost constantly that Caesar is Lord, and that Caesar is king of all kings. And, and then you turn and look here in Israel, and you see Herod on the throne, and you hear all the whispers of those who say, we've really got to get Herod off the throne. We've got to set up our own king. We need to make a king for ourselves. In this moment, we find these three scenes in the scripture that I'm going to walk us through. These three scenes, I think, help us see the magnitude and the significance of what it meant when Jesus stepped onto the stage and called himself king. So first, the first scene is going to be a scene that teaches us about Jesus' kingship by revealing that Jesus' kingship made him worthy of worship. This scene is going to come in Matthew 2:11. This is a scene you're very familiar with that comes up every Christmas, but notice here the royal language that you maybe had missed when you last read it. So Matthew 2:11 says, "On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they, these are the wise men from the east, bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, this is one of those wonderful gifts of a scene that because we've seen this portrait so many times at Christmas, because we were taught as children to watch as the three wise men follow the star. I've literally been walking through this with my daughter. Like, there's the star. Like, how many men? One, two, three. Good job. What is this? Gold. What is this? Say frankincense. Fra franken. Yeah, uh, it's fun. But 
that has sort of muted this scene down in the significance politically of what's happening here. Think about this, in the scene, in the context where Rome and Israel are struggling for power, a child is born and men from the east who themselves are considered noble, wise lords, they come bearing gifts that only a king would be worthy to receive. Gifts of gold, which was associated with nobility, immense grandeur, wealth. Uh, frankincense, which was typically the incense used to burn in an offering given to a god. And then myrrh, which was this fragrant aroma often used to bury individuals of noble birth. All three sit here at this child's feet. And you notice specifically, these noble royal men not only offer their tribute, but they bow down and worship this king. I think there's something we say as we sort of recalibrate what it means that Jesus is king. Jesus is worthy of worship. There's a sense that you can almost see Jesus' life flow through those gifts, right? The gold, which is alluding to his royal lineage in David, the frankincense, which is going to allude to his own claim to be the son of God, the true son of God, and myrrh that's already anticipating his death and burial that is going to come and be the climactic act of him raising from the dead. Uh, but I mean, imagine just for a moment, reimagine that scene. This is not a simple childlike scene. This is a scene of grandeur. And this is a scene that invites or perhaps even demands worship. Will you join these wise men in recognizing who they come before? It's our first portrait. Our second portrait reveals that Jesus is worthy of trust. Again, this scene is probably familiar to you, a portrait you've perhaps heard before. I'm going to read it out loud here as we go to the text in Mark. Uh, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was, this is Jesus, in the boat. There also were other boats with him. Now a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I, I love that this scene sort of captures the fury of the storms that hit the followers of Jesus. If you ever had a chance to go to Israel, the Sea of Galilee is not actually that huge. It's, it's kind of small. It's more lake-like, uh, not Lake Michigan-like, much smaller like a Minnesota lake-like. And yet this sea in Galilee does have these sort of hilly mountain ranges next to them, which means that if and when the storms come over these hills, they can get cooped up right over the Sea of Galilee and Waves of 10, 15, 20 feet have been recorded just buffeting this tiny little sea. And so here, the disciples are with their teacher, are with even their Lord, and yet the storm still comes. Have you ever wondered why? Why does Jesus let the storm come in the first place? Like, why is Jesus okay with storms hitting his disciples? And yet, in the next passage, Jesus is going to get up and he's going to rebuke the wind and say to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. 
if our first portrait was starting to point us to the fact that Jesus is worthy of worship, that Jesus is in fact himself the royal king that the people of Israel had long been hoping for and anticipating, something far more supernatural is being revealed in this moment, isn't there? And yet, I don't want us to miss in the supernaturalness in which Jesus is so clearly not just king in a political sense, but king in a cosmic sense, king in control over the entire creation, what we also have here is this small little parable, a story about how Jesus' kingship actually plays itself out in our lives. Uh, The early church, I keep referring to the early church, I actually really like the early church. I think they sometimes were more imaginative than we are when when it comes to reading these kinds of stories. Uh, The early church was really clear, oh, this, this is what happens when we follow Jesus. We get hit by storms all the time, do we not? I mean, we get hit by cultural and global storms, as the last two years have clearly reminded us. But even more than that, we certainly get hit by personal storms. Um, My personal storm is ongoing. Uh, It's a storm of boxes (laughs) and a storm of moving uh, and a a storm of sleep deprivation. And yet, if we're being honest, the storms that most of us face often go far deeper than that, don't they? Uh, My wife and I were just last night, putting something on that came out in 2020 during the pandemic, and it was sort of referring to depression and anxiety. And as we were watching it, I just got hit with this realization, like it's been two years now. But when the pandemic first started, we were all locked in. Like my, my personal levels of depression and anxiety were all the way up. We're all the way up at probably all-time highs for me. I went through a significant stretch of feeling quite clinically likely depressed, even though I never went and got diagnosed for it. It was there. The depression was real. The days were hard and long. The nights were difficult. And I'm sure, I'm sure for you, if you didn't feel it during COVID, which I know many of us did, you too have found yourself in these storms where it feels like out of nowhere the the winds and the waves just start crashing. And this picture where Jesus is there in the boat, you know he's there, and yet the question is, teacher, do you care? Do you care, teacher, that I'm caught in the storm? This this portrait is offered to us to tell us, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Uh, The waves and the winds, Jesus is able to control. Jesus can step in and offer that steadying presence if we invite him. However, the the question that the disciples ask, if we go to the final verse, is the right question that every storm invites each of us to ask. It's, who is this, really? Who is this Jesus we say that we're following? Who is this Jesus if he is our king? And do we actually believe Jesus is worthy of trust when we get hit with the storms? This is sort of connected to the final portrait I'm going to reflect on with you. This portrait's coming from Mark 11. We're kind of doing this breakneck tour through Jesus' life and what it means for Jesus to be king. Here in Mark 11, we find one last very familiar scene that we just sort of went through in the calendar year, the week before Easter. And it's this scene in Mark 11 where we really get an insight into the kingship of Jesus, what it truly means that Jesus came as a king. So it says, when they brought the colt to Jesus, this small, humble donkey, and they threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. 
Many people spread their cloaks on the roads, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. You catch the royal imagery that again can sometimes just slip right past us because we're so used to not having a king. Uh, But in particular, what's so striking about this scene that is also easy to miss is what the people are doing as Jesus comes. Again, we kind of picture the the palm branches that are being waved, the shouts of acclamation, praise, worship, hosanna, God is saving us, it's time that God is finally here. Uh, But notice first what happens is that people spread their cloaks on the donkey and they spread their cloaks down on the road. In the ancient world, you only had one cloak. You only had one. And so for a person to take their cloak, which is their most significant piece of clothing, which is the clothing that helps get you through the winter, which is the clothing that helps you endure any element that life is going to throw at you, for you to put this cloak down on the ground to keep the dirt low because you know your king is coming. This ultimately is an act of allegiance. This is a declaration that the most valuable piece of equipment you have in your life to endure the storms and the trials and the tragedies, you're going to put down on the road because you believe this one coming on a colt is capable of caring for you. That you'd actually rather be committed to this one than trust in yourself or in your own provision. There's this sort of picture that's coming together as you move through these three portraits. That Jesus is, as king, worthy of worship, surely. That Jesus is, as king, worthy of trust through any storm you find yourself in. And yet that last one, I think if we're being honest, is actually the most challenging. Are we truly ready to lay our cloaks down? Are we truly ready to commit our allegiance to this one as our King and Lord? What I love about thinking about Jesus' own day is that just like in ours, there were many other options on the table if you lived in Jerusalem. There were many other places you could turn to for trust with your allegiance. There were many other options to worship, quite honestly. Lots of gods offering lots of different pleasures and possibilities. Yet, when Jesus shows up, he says, there's only one who is coming to you now as God, claiming to be your king. Are you you ready, this Sunday even, as we've been moving through this series, are you ready to enter into what it looks like to follow Jesus as Savior And as your Lord, Jesus is Lord. Uh, We've got a testimony I'd love to share. Uh, This is someone who has uh, been a part of community for a while. Patrick's actually come. Some of you may recognize him. I haven't met Patrick yet, uh, but he's taught here in the city, lived in the city for a while. And Patrick just has a really great story 
as we reflect on stories, testimonies, uh, sharing stories with each other of what it looks like not only to find your way back to God, but also to follow Jesus as your king. So I'm going to turn it over to Patrick here. My name is Patrick O'Connell, and I'm the Global Director of New Thing. I'm also on staff right here at Community. I did not grow up in the church. I was born Catholic, but really just a cultural Catholic. And when my parents got divorced when I was 12, we really never went to church after that. And then at a really hard season of my life, a dark season of my life, when I was in my early 30s, uh, we had connected with a group of people in our neighborhood, and we went to some neighborhood parties, and one of the women and my wife, Nancy, became really great friends. And that woman and her family went to community on a fairly regular basis, and she invited us to church. Of course, I was not going to church and refused to go to church, but my wife did. For four years, she went to church without me, which as I look over my shoulder now, that's a little embarrassing, but those were years that I needed to see and watch her transformation, and it was her testimony about the messages and about the connection and about small groups at community that really made a difference in her life. And then, as that season was becoming more and more dark for me, I agreed to go with her, and I can't quite put my finger on why I went. Now, I'm not going to tell you that that service changed my life, but it started a series of events, of connecting points that I can clearly identify. And that led first to joining a small group. And that was a big deal for us, especially because at that season in my life, I was very, very reclusive in the sense of not sharing myself, not wanting to be open with anyone. And then I got into leadership. Very soon after, I became a small group apprentice. We were baptized as a family. And then, very shortly thereafter, because I'm that kind of a guy, it was, we're going all in. Our friends, Troy and Janet McMahon, who used to be on staff right here at Community, were going to Kansas City to plant the church. And Troy and Janet were coaches of mine in our small group ministry. And they asked, would this be something you'd be ever interested in doing? Going to Kansas City and planting churches with us. It was a scary and exciting and exhilarating and overwhelming season of our lives. Our kids went, obviously, and we moved there as a family with a group of people to start a church just like community to help more people find their way back to God in Kansas City. And that was six or seven years where I did a ton of things as a church planter. And then in 2013, Dave Ferguson called me up and said, "Hey." I'd uh, like to talk to you about maybe coming back to Chicago. And I said, well, why would I do that? And that set up a series of events that eventually led us back to Chicago, and I became the director of New Thing. New Thing is a catalyst for movements of reproducing churches. Now, what that means is we help start churches just like this one for people just like you, and we do that all over the world. And currently, we're working in 40, 40 countries, and I get a front row seat to see Jesus at work in the lives of leaders everywhere. And this is what I mean by Jesus is King, is now in my life, because I have been able to, to make Jesus King, He is taking me to places I could have never imagined. And that's it. It's not because of who I am. It's not anything special I bring. It's all because I found a way, in my own way, to be obedient and to make Jesus King and Lord of my life. And now, it has been this crazy, wonderful adventure that I don't regret a moment of. I love that story. I love seeing real examples 
um, that we have here in this room. I think it's sometimes easy to think that following Jesus is just an addition, some sort of add-on, that even, uh, even if you've been following Jesus for a while, that Christianity becomes just sort of a, a casual occurrence in your life, uh, as opposed to this radical, altering commitment uh, to follow your king. Um, I have been struck this week, even just in the chaos of moving, how uh, something like a move itself here back to Chicago is really ultimately not because I want to go through seasonal changes, life upheaval, but because I want to follow Jesus as my king. And yet, as great as it is to hear Patrick come all the way full circle into ministry, what I want to point out to you is that the kingship of Jesus doesn't just work through the church. Jesus' kingship is happening when you go to your work when you're in your jobs, in your professions, in your industries, as you faithfully ask this question, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus as my king, where I am, where I'm living, where I'm working, where I am loving those around me? Um, I've given it away here, but there's one last portrait I wanted to show you as we turn uh, to respond to this message, to this invitation. I uh, don't know if any of you out here are art buffs at all. I'm still getting to know the room, so you can tell me afterwards, too much art this week, we can pull back. Uh, but I, I love a, little, a good little bit of art history, uh, and this portrait is by Salvador Dali, who is notorious as a surrealist in the 20th century. He did a lot of abstract stuff, he explored sort of the limits of art to depict reality in bizarre, strange ways. You can see some of his stuff over at the Art Institute in Chicago. It's over at the Modern Museum of Art. He's really one of the major figures in 20th century art. And yet, what most people don't know about him is that late in his life, he had a return to the church. He grew up in Spain, grew up in a very Catholic neighborhood, and he returned to the faith and had this sort of reawakening, spiritual reawakening in his life. And near the end of his career, he had this stunning portrait put together in which uh, he called it Christ, St. John's Christ on the Cross. Uh, what's unique about this portrait is that there's really not any other artwork you can think of that actually looks at the crucifixion from above, right? It's kind of a strange perspective most sort of medieval stuff is looking up at Christ to adore him. But what I love about what Salvador Dali captured here is that you almost really get the sense not just of Christ's agony but of his kingship as Christ looks down and reigns from the cross. Uh, that sea underneath him, my first instinct to ask why Dali would include Christ sort of over the cosmos but looking down, it looks a lot to me like a fishing boat, doesn't it? A fishing boat that perhaps is heading out into the storms, or perhaps a fishing boat that's waiting for a disciple to get in, to set out, to start capturing some fish. But as I looked into this, Dolly actually said this was the scene from his home that was the harbor sitting out in front of his house. And so ultimately what Salvador Dolly was reflecting on is that Christ as king reigns from the cross even over his very life.